If it's Monday, former President Trump and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis deliver dueling speeches and preview a fiery fight as more Republican leaders weigh in on the future of the party and the race for the White House. Plus, crime, punishment, and 2024. D.C. tries to reverse course on a local law that's creating problems for national Democrats who are trying to avoid looking soft on crime. And Russian forces are poised for their first major battlefield victory in months in the eastern city of Bakhmut, as NBC News is the first to report that Ukrainian pilots are in the U.S. preparing to train on aircraft like the F-16. Welcome to Meet the Press Now. I'm Kristen Welker. The 2024 Republican presidential primary is officially kicking into a higher gear with declared and potential candidates hitting the trail and setting the scene for the next stretch of campaigning. Former President Donald Trump took the stage this weekend in front of a friendly crowd at CPAC where attendees overwhelmingly picked him in their 2024 straw poll. On stage, the former president cast himself as a political outsider and at times took a dark tone vowing revenge against his political enemies. If you put me back in the White House, their reign is over. In 2016, I declared, I am your voice. Today, I add, I am your warrior. I am your justice. And for those who have been wronged and betrayed, I am your retribution. I am your retribution. Mr. Trump also took a not-so-subtle swipe at his likely top competitor, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, but didn't mention him by name. DeSantis, who did not appear at CPAC and is not an announced candidate, gave a speech at the Reagan Library in California, touting his record in Florida as a model for conservatives across the country, while taking his own not-so-veiled shot at the former president. In four years, uh, you didn't see our administration leaking like a sieve. You didn't see a lot of drama or palace intrigue. What you saw was surgical precision execution day after day after day. And because we did that, we beat the left day after day after day. In a move that could bolster a presidential bid this week, DeSantis and Florida's Republican supermajority state house are embarking on an ambitious red meat legislative agenda of conservative priorities. And with the fight between Trump and DeSantis heating up, former Maryland Republican governor is choosing to pass on a presidential bid, saying he does not want to occupy space in the field that could go to someone who isn't Trump or DeSantis. I didn't want to have a uh, pile up of a bunch of people fighting. Right now you have, you know, Trump and DeSantis at the top of the field, you're soaking up all the oxygen, getting all the attention, and then a whole lot of the rest of us in single digits. And uh, the more of them you have, the less chance you have for somebody rising up. Lessons learned from 2016. One of those alternative candidates could be New Hampshire Republican Governor Chris Sununu. On Meet the Press Sunday, Sununu told Chuck he's confident Trump won't be the Republican nominee and pitched a pragmatic future for the party. 
Republicans cannot win without independents. It cannot happen. So if we just stay in this uh, ultra conservative extreme lane, which is a very small part of the party, by the way, mm-hmm. um, that's all we're going. I, I get it. That's where the headlines are going to be. Right. But at the end of the day, if we can get stuff done, I think governors do a great job of that. Mayors do a great job of that. Senate and Congress, not so much on either side of the aisle. But governors and mayors have a, an amazing ability every day to make decisions, to impact people's lives and deliver results. And that's exactly what folks are going to be looking for in 24. Joining me now is NBC's Vaughn Hilliard. He was at CPAC over the weekend and Tampa Bay Times Tallahassee correspondent Lawrence Moyer. Thanks so much to both of you for being here. Vaughn, let me start with you. I mean, former President Trump had about the friendliest audience that he could imagine at CPAC. What were your big takeaways from his messaging over the weekend? What does it tell you about his strategy heading into 2024? Right. I think, number one, for all of us, Kristen, I think you are my warrior. You are my justice, despite what Donald Trump says here. But this was a speech by Donald Trump in which he, by saying those words, you are my retribution. Really, he was trying to position himself. Think about it. For those that were in the crowd, when they hear those words, I am your warrior, I am your justice. He was trying to take the mantle for the conservative movement that exists today and, uh, and, and trying to lay claim to the four years of successes in his definition that his administration was able to garner, but then uh, really propagating the idea of giving him another shot here. And person after person that we talked to, they told us that they thought that Donald Trump should be their nominee in 2024. And it was not slights against Ron DeSantis or Nikki Haley or or Mike Pence even, but instead it was about the uh, the knowledge that those individuals could run down the road from now. I want to let you hear, though, from uh, Trump a little bit more, because without naming Ron DeSantis by name, he took another thinly veiled shot at him when it came to past remarks by Ron DeSantis suggesting potentially privatizing Social Security. Take a listen to him this weekend. We're not going back to people that want to destroy our great Social Security system. Even some in our own party, I wonder who that might be, (laughs) that want to raise the minimum age of Social Security to 70, 75, or even 80 in some cases, and that are out to cut Medicare to a level that it will no longer be recognizable. So this weekend told us two things about Donald Trump is number one, he is eager to differentiate himself on policy to a certain extent with potential Republican rivals. But also when it comes to the uh, investigations that are continuing into him, several which are expected to culminate and potentially uh, could include indictments against him. He just much like he did ahead of the 2020 campaign when he used the impeachment proceedings against him as a force to mobilize the Republican base of activists those very type of people in the room, he is indicating that, yet again, he wants to be that warrior and, in a way, fight back against what he says is a politicized Biden administration and Department of Justice. And, Vaughn, very quickly, you have former President Trump and Governor Ron DeSantis scheduled to be visiting Iowa in the coming days. What are you going to be watching for? Right. That's, you know, this week, Ron DeSantis is going to be making multiple stops in Iowa. This comes after weekend trips to Alabama, Texas and California. Uh, Donald Trump, just a week from now, will be making his stop in Iowa. And it is not a mega rally that Donald Trump is going to be holding. Instead, he's going to be over in Davenport, uh, uh, in which he is going to be talking about his education proposal. He's talked about cutting federal funding to school districts that promote gender studies uh, or critical race theory 
theory. He has talked about ending tenure for teachers K-12. Uh, he has talked about having parents vote for principals at public schools. He, I'm told by multiple advisors, he intends to really, over the course of these next weeks and months, try to lay out a, a substantive platform, knowing that that is not his, that he's going to be able to walk to this time around. Well, and that takes me to Lawrence Maurer. Lawrence, uh, let me just ask you, because there is a new legislative session in Florida where they are expected to tackle a lot of the issues that Vaughn just ticked through. Uh, what are you expecting to see in this legislative session? And to what extent is this going to be a springboard for a DeSantis candidacy? Well, the short answer is that, you know, whatever DeSantis wants, he'll most likely get. Uh, he has more sway over the lawmakers in Tallahassee than any governor in recent memory. I mean, he won re-election by a wide margin, uh, 19 points, which was a landslide, certainly in Florida. Um, and, you know, basically the, the, the legislature does not have the kind of sway that he used to. And, uh, you, you know, basically you're going to see a lot of the same stuff that he's uh, talked about in the past. You're going to see he's going to expand the migrant relocation program. Uh, they, he's asking for another $12 million for that. That's, of course, he he spent uh, more than a million dollars to fly oh, 49 people or so uh, from Texas to Martha's Vineyard last year. You're going to see him um, expand his voter fraud unit. Uh, he's asking for more money for that. Um, he's going to be uh, targeting diversity and equity and inclusion programs at universities, um, you know, woke fund, you know, uh, woke funding, so to speak, for, uh, you know, investment standards and whatnot. Uh, you're also going to see, uh, things like, uh, I mean, you mentioned on there, uh, uh, allowing the concealed carry of a firearms without a permit. Um, and also the, the really big thing that is maybe would be the biggest leap for him this session would be to get to require all employers to check and screen their employees through the federal e-verify immigration system. This is something that Republicans in the past have killed. DeSantis tried to get this passed back in 2020 because it was one of his 2018 campaign promises. And he ended up signing a watered down version of that bill very quietly. No, you know, no announcement or big bill signing for it. And he's going to make another run at that this year. So big picture, what does this mean for a DeSantis campaign, which he hasn't announced yet, he's taking his time. I mean, is there concern he's waiting too long? I mean, I don't really think so. I mean, I don't think it's been any secret of what his strategy has been, which is, you know, he's very good about making very strong executive decisions that generate a lot of headlines, both in conservative press and on Fox News, and also uh, among, you know, mainstream and liberal media, you know, and this is, since the pandemic, his profile has only been elevated because of these things. And so you're going to see more of that, more of him trying to stay in the news, get headlines, you know, that's been his recipe for for success so far. And, you know, the one thing about DeSantis is that he's a he's a very good opportunist. Mm. I mean, he became governor by playing to Trump and getting Trump's endorsement. And that's why he's Florida governor. And so you're going to see more of that. And he delivers his state of the state tomorrow. So we will be listening closely what he has to say in that speech. Vaughn and Lawrence, thank you both so much for your great reporting. Joining me now on set is Nicholas Wu, congressional reporter for Politico, Juanita Tolliver, Democratic strategist and an NBC News political analyst, and former Illinois Republican Congressman Rodney Davis. Thanks to all of you for starting us off on this Monday. Nicholas, let me start with you. Where are we in this campaign? You have Trump speaking at CPAC. You have Ron DeSantis at the Reagan Library and speaking in other places. 
Obviously, things are heating up, but it's certainly not the height of the campaign yet. Right. It's worth noting how early we still are, right? Mm. There aren't that many declared candidates, right? DeSantis is not even officially in the race yet, right? And yet we see all of these machinations going on behind the scenes as people try to figure out where exactly their lane is going to be in what will be a very crowded Republican primary. But I think the question looming over all of this, though, is what Republican candidate is going to be able to consolidate enough support to take on Trump? Mm. Yeah. And the question is, will he actually I mean Governor Sununu said he's not going to be the nominee? A lot of people would disagree with that. Let me play <laughs> a little bit more of what the former president had to say at CPAC, get everyone's reaction. We started this journey, a journey like there has never been before. There's never been anything like this. We had a Republican Party that was ruled by freaks, neocons, <laughs> globalists, open border zealots and fools. But we are never going back to the party of Paul Ryan, Karl Rove, and Jeb Bush. This is signature Trump, but has the party moved beyond those types of attacks? Congressman Davis, what do you think? Well, every poll shows a majority of Republicans in this country do not want Donald Trump to be the nominee. However, he's the clear front runner. Uh, his speech, no surprise, he actually wove in a reference to Hannibal Lecter and silence of the lambs. Mm. I mean, how many people can do that in America? But Donald Trump can. And many of us think he's cannibalizing the Republican Party. And I agree with Governor Sununu, a large field, disastrous for the rest of the candidates. Well, but he is running as an outsider. I mean, this is someone who served as president. He's now had three presidential campaigns. I mean, Juanita, can, can he pull this off? <laughs> Running I, as an outsider? I mean, how, how do Democrats view When you say argument? outsider, though, it seems like he's the one lagging behind. Because I think what DeSantis pinpointed mm. in his speech was what comes with Trump is the name calling, is the bad headlines, is the bad press and the drama. Whereas DeSantis says, I've been explicitly surgical in advancing an extremist GOP agenda, right? Like yeah. that is the different sales pitch. So I'm not sure if Trump's going to be able to catch up if, if name calling's all he got here, because substance even though it's about cruelty and harmful policies, seems to be where this GOP primary is headed. And I wonder what how Democrats are viewing this mm -hmm. moment that we are in right now, because President Biden has not announced yet. Right. We expect him to do so in the near future. Uh, but he certainly is quite fine to remind everyone that he is currently the occupant in the Oval Office. Is that the right strategy or does he need to get in? I think what Biden needs to do is not only remind people he's the one who beat Trump in 2020, but maintain a message that appeals broadly. I'm talking, talk to those independents, talk to those moderate Republicans who don't want Trump or DeSantis and make sure that you're creating a lane that could draw them in heading into 2024. As we showed at the top, Governor Larry Hogan has said he's not going to get into this race. He said he doesn't want to create a crowded field and basically repeat what happened in 2016, which is that the field was so crowded that Trump won. Nicholas, to what extent does this open up other lanes, clearer lanes for other potential candidates? Well, it takes at least one person out of out of contention for all that, but still, that leaves a potential pile up between all the other folks that looking that are looking like they're running, like you know John Bolton, Nikki Haley, mm -hmm. uh, Pompeo. Like the list goes on and on. And um, you know, one person being removed from that who who had kind of a unique appeal as a blue state Republican in the first place still means that there's still plenty of others who could come and fill the void. Yeah, Congressman, what do you think about that? I mean, what's notable to me is that Nikki Haley, who is in this race, is not really carving out a separate lane from her former boss. And we haven't really seen 
many Republicans do that yet. DeSantis is starting to. Well, the oxygen is being taken out of the room by Trump and Ron DeSantis. Uh, being Nikki Haley, uh, she can do whatever she wants, still is not going to get enough attention right now. Um, she needs to succeed when it comes to the debates mm -hmm. and being on the debate stage. That is what will separate her and give her the attention she needs to be able to get some of that oxygen. Uh, governor Hogan, a great governor, great guy, no path to victory in this mm -hmm. Republican primary this time. He knew that, which is why he didn't run. And I'm curious, what do you think of the former president running as a so-called outsider? Does that work? Is there any tr can he make that argument, given that he's the former president? You know, if anybody can, it's Donald Trump. <laughs> Just talk through the mental gymnastics. <laughs> like. I mean, he governed with us. We had great policies. You know, the policies that Ron DeSantis is pushing are supported yeah. by over half of all Americans. Mm. And Donald Trump succeeded in getting some of our policies passed. But he just couldn't help himself with the rest of the craziness around the administration. Juanita, let me read you something that Larry Hogan said about Ron DeSantis. Speaking of DeSantis, he said, quote, many in the Republican Party falsely believe that the best way to reach these voters is through more angry, performative politics and bigger government. These are just empty calories that can't sustain the lasting governing coalition necessary to restore America. What do you make of that? And what do you make of what you've seen of DeSantis so far? Do Democrats see him as the biggest threat? I think it's predicting kind of what's happening to Kevin McCarthy in the House right now. DeSantis mm. is going to continue to try to follow this thread of extremist wing of the GOP, the MAGA Republicans. And then they're going to demand so much of him that they reject him if he's elected, right? And so I think that is kind of the faith that Larry Hogan's laying out. But I don't think, I think Democrats look at DeSantis and recognize who he is. He's someone who is anti-black, anti-black history, anti-LGBTQ, anti-women, and are looking to name all of that because I think that is something that's going to be able to tap into the pulse of this country where you have red states across the country supporting uh, abortion access, where you have people across the country supporting the ability to just learn the basic history of this country. I want to talk about two of the issues, uh, abortion and crime, that I think are becoming, we are seeing emerging as potentially two of the biggest issues in 2024. It's still very early. Um, but Juanita, there's been all of this debate over the DC crime bill, mm. the president saying he's not going to veto Republicans' efforts to overturn this bill. He doesn't want to look soft on crime. How right. big of an issue is this and how early do Democrats need to jump on this issue in their message? Uh, right now with the curveball that the president threw, because a lot of Democrats Caught, were caught off guard by that. They were took. They were completely surprised when the president was like, "Well, I won't block this action from Republicans." And it's it's kind of raising a couple of questions. One around D.C. statehood. Yet again, yes. D.C. should be able to establish its own laws and its own for its own citizens. But the reality is, this is absolutely something the president Biden does not want to be seen soft on because Republicans will hit him over the head with it every chance they get. Nicholas. Well, I was in Baltimore last week with House Democrats as they had their annual conference, and it was striking to see how they were caught off guard entirely mm -hmm. when, the, when the president went and privately informed Senate Democrats about this. And, and reporters were the ones to tell D.C.'s non-voting delegate, Eleanor Holmes Norton, um, the news herself, right? And so I think this is where you could have some of the election year politics of the president collide with the actual realities of, mm -hmm. of governing with the rest of the party, right? Where, you know, he's trying to stake himself out here as tough on crime, yet at the same time, this leads to a whole trust issue with members of his own. Party. Do Republicans see the abortion issue as similarly challenging and problematic in terms of their prospects in 2024? Because based on what we saw in the midterms, voters are energized around this issue. 
uh, voters were energized in certain congressional districts. However, Republicans nationwide won the congressional vote, uh, even though we had a very small, slim majority that we were anticipating. We had a lot of close races. Redistricting was not friendly to Republicans in certain states like Illinois. Um, and then you know, in places like New York, our candidates beat the trends. Crime is going to be a big issue. Ron DeSantis, Donald Trump, every Republican is going to run on this message of crime. And it is it is being noticed by Democrats or President Biden wouldn't have made the decision he made when it came to Washington, D.C. You are right about that. All right. It's still early, but so much to discuss. Thank you for being here to discuss it. Nicholas Juanita and former Congressman Rodney Davis. Really appreciate it. Coming up as President Biden is laying the groundwork ahead of his anticipated 2024 reelection announcement. New reporting from NBC News on the rising pressure on the president to visit the site of the toxic train derailment in East Palestine, Ohio. Plus, what the top lawmakers on the House Intelligence Committee revealed to Chuck about their long-awaited briefing about the classified documents found at the homes of Presidents Biden and former President Trump. You're watching Meet the Press Now. Stay with us. Primary season is here. If you've got voting questions, we've got voting answers. Visit NBCNews.com slash plan your vote. You'll find when and how to vote in your state's primary election. Visit NBCNews.com slash plan your vote today. Join Hoda Kotfi for a brand new season of her podcast, Making Space. For season five, I am making space to talk to people who are providing a sense of hope and inspiration when life changes course. Uplifting conversations with inspiring individuals like NFL legend Drew Brees, singer-songwriter Ziggy Marley, and today's show co-anchor Savannah Guthrie as you have never heard her before. I found faith more viscerally, not because the bad thing didn't happen, but because it did. I promise you, like me, will leave these conversations with some wisdom for your own journey, empowered and inspired to make space in your own life. New episodes of Making Space with Hoda Kotb are released every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. Ahead of an anticipated 2024 re-election announcement, President Biden spoke today to members of the International Association of Firefighters, the first major union to endorse his 2020 presidential campaign and an endorsement he's likely to court again. And his domestic agenda is giving some preview of what policy items are top of mind for a re-election campaign. Speaking in Selma, Alabama this weekend, the president highlighted the threats to voting rights. He called on Congress to pass the John Lewis Voting Rights Act named for the late Georgia congressman and civil rights leader. Take a listen. In January, I signed the Electoral Count Reform Act to protect the will of the people and the people transfer and the peaceful transfer of power. We know that we must get the votes in Congress (coughs) to pass the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act and the Freedom to Vote Act. I made it clear I will not let a filibuster obstruct the sacred right to vote, the right of any other right to vote from there. Meanwhile, we have new reporting now from NBC News that there are no plans right now for President Biden to visit the site of the toxic train derailment in East Palestine, Ohio, after his potential 2024 rival Donald Trump visited last month and accused the Biden administration of a lackluster response. That reporting from Peter Nicholas, Monica Alba and myself earlier today. Joining me now is NBC News White House correspondent Ali Rafa. 
Allie, let's start with what we heard from the president who was speaking to the firefighters union. He is casting himself as the most pro-union president in history. What were your key takeaways from what we heard from him? Yeah, Kristen, you and I both know how much President Biden loves to talk to union workers, to firefighters, blue collar workers. And you could almost feel the admiration and the respect that these this group and President Biden have for each other. Even watching this on TV, this almost felt uh, like a campaign event that this uh, union would have for him back in 2019, shortly after they endorsed him. Uh, this speech that he gave was all about loyalty. The president talking about all the different times throughout his life. He's relied on firefighters, how he plans to have their backs for the next two years of his presidency and potentially beyond that. He talked about uh, providing more financial and economic aid to them, as well as uh, even medical aid, calling for more funding uh, for their retirement benefits, as well as more medical protections, especially for those uh, firefighters that have been exposed to toxic chemicals on the job. So this speech from the president today still delivered in a presidential capacity, as he's not a 2024 candidate, uh, but it definitely had those undertones uh, of a campaign speech as he tries to solidify support from this union as early as possible ahead of that expected 2024 announcement, Kristen. And Ali, I want to ask you about this new reporting. President Biden said when he was visiting Capitol Hill last week that, yes, he does intend to go to East Palestine. We've been drilling down, talking to sources at this point in time, no immediate plans for him to go to East Palestine. Talk, if you would, about the complicated politics surrounding this uh, and when, if ever, we might see a presidential visit. Yeah, Kristen, a lot of layers to this. Remember, the original reason why White House officials were saying both officially and unofficially why he wasn't going to East Palestine in the wake of this disaster was uh, both he and uh, Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg was that they didn't want to distract from the ongoing uh, cleanup efforts. They didn't want to uh, take any resources away from the community to be able to provide for this presidential visit. They didn't want this to possibly look like political theater in the President visiting. Uh, but it, the uh, White House is now not exactly saying why they're not on the same page with the president. As you mentioned, the president said last week he does intend to go to East Palestine. But the White House is now saying that there are no plans on the books. There's no urgency in getting this, this plan on the book. Even after increasing pressure over the last month from Republicans and Democrats, uh, both on the state and the federal level, uh, even from community members of East Palestine, uh, the White House uh, now really not explaining why they're on separate pages. But you can imagine uh, how confusing this is because, you know, the president has pledged his support for East Palestine. He's spoken with state leaders uh, and said he'd provide whatever support they needed. He's even supporting uh, this recent rail legislation for more rail mm-hmm. safety in the wake of this disaster. And you and I have seen how he thrives in settings where he gets to meet with community members face to face and offer his support with them. Uh, The White House official is telling us that this event could possibly happen tacked on to another uh, visit to a nearby area. Uh, But right now, you and I both know how important it is for leaders to meet the moment. And that moment may have passed for the president as of right now, Kristen. Ali Rafa, great reporting. As always, thank you so much. And joining me now is the Democratic congressman from Illinois, Jonathan Jackson. Congressman Jackson, thank you so much for being here. 
Really appreciate it. I just want to start off by getting you to respond to this latest reporting. President Biden has said he plans to go to East Palestine. Uh, and yet the White House says that at this point in time, no imminent plans for him to travel there. What is your message to the president about this? I would follow the president's lead, his message. Ultimately, he will make the decision. You know, when you move the president, there's an enormous amount of resources. Taking presidents into a disaster, taking them into a recovery area, absolutely drains the local resources from security, from fire. Addressing the needs of the people in Palatine is uh, most important. And he's already done that. He's talked to every local official. He's committed resources. And so the president is there in spirit. This is the job for the National Transportation Safety Board at this time. Then there will be enough time for the president to attend. And Congressman, I take your point, but would you like to see the president there in East Palestine? Should he go as commander in chief? I do. I do think so. And I think it's now a matter of timing. I think this is first on the desk of the um, the Secretary of Transportation. This is a transportation safety issue. There are other uh, issues of a failing infrastructure around the nation that have to be dealt with. And there are preliminary reports that have come out uh, from the National Transportation Safety Board. And most importantly, the president has put the people first. He has sent the resources. He's assured them that he's going to deal with the toxicity and dealing with the rails. And this isn't the only spot yeah. in his top of mind for him. Let's talk about another issue, voting rights. You were in Selma. Uh, president Biden was there this weekend, obviously, calling on Congress to pass the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. As you know, the votes are not there for that. Give us the reality check, because essentially uh, this is something that would require the Democrats to get rid of the filibuster. Doesn't look like that's going to happen, that there are votes there for that to happen. Realistically, can this get done over the next two years? Absolutely. And what you I think so? You think you can get the votes Absolutely. in the Senate? Positively. And so what I am most hopeful about the president, he's not following the opinion polls. He is molding the opinion. He's doing what's right. 58 years after the bloody Sunday, he took the march to Selma. He went there and crossed the bridge. He's there in the spirit of Miss Amelia Boynton, of Jimmy Lee Jackson. He is aligned with the civil rights tradition. So he's in the fight. So he's not sitting back looking at the polls saying, what should I do? He's telling people the necessity and the urgency and is leading. Let me press you a little bit on how this realistically can happen. Republicans obviously have control of the House. I don't have to tell you that. And the votes just aren't there in the Senate right now. I know. And that's the job of the president, not to simply follow. That's what the critics will do. That's what the pollsters will do. But the president leads. He has to shape and form the opinions of the nation. And he is taking the courage and he is demonstrating by action, by showing up where the action is, where the needs are. These court, these cases are now going before the Supreme Court in Alabama, in North Carolina. So he is dealing with the live wire for that. I have enormous amount of respect and appreciation he was there, boots on the ground. I hear you saying, basically, you want the president to use his bully pulpit. He didn't mention this issue in his State of the Union address. Was that a mistake? And should he make this the centerpiece or a centerpiece of any 2024 campaign? No, he should not. Not at this moment. What did the president Was have it a to mistake not to mention it at the State of the Union? I don't think so. Um, the president had to turn the ship around. He went into a burning house. If I take your mind back to just two years ago when the president got into office, he couldn't even come out 
and address the public because of the sedition, the insurrection, the segregationists that were fighting. This campus was on lockdown. This 570-acre campus of the United States Capitol was on lockdown. He's had to repair what was being destroyed. And so he's had so much to do in a little bit of time. We were also dealing with the Nichols uh, murder in Memphis. So I think addressing that family's need and pain, Mm -hmm. dealing with policing reform, having to sign on for the uh, George Floyd Act, and now having to deal with voting rights. He's had a full plate, and um, I'm very encouraged. In addition to policing reform, there has just been a lot of focus on the issue of crime, particularly with uh, the bill here in D.C. that would essentially have softened some penalties for some crimes. Uh, And essentially, the president has said he's not going to veto a Republican effort to block what would have passed here in Washington, D.C., do you think that's the right move? And do you think that Democrats are putting enough focus on the issue of crime? Um, Democrats certainly have to put more focus on crime. But think about what's happened since 2001. My youngest child is 21 years of age now. Our nation has been at war every day of his life. Mm. I mean, we have to deal with crime and deal with violence from the top down. And so, yes, the president has to address that. But this is like, uh, and I think if, in my own personal opinion, we have to talk about where is this uh, level of antipathy and this anger coming from? We have to deal with the game manufacturers. Most countries do not let children see this amount of violence in games in the music. It's a violent culture that we have to turn around. Well, and and let I understand your point about the broader cultural issue. You have endorsed Brandon Johnson in the Chicago mayor's race, someone uh, who has been criticized for supporting the defund the police movement. Now, he hasn't necessarily been talking about that frequently, but do Democrats run the risk of running too far left on this issue of crime that some would say cost Mayor Lightfoot her job? Yes, absolutely. The Democrats have to be careful of that. So is Brandon Johnson the best choice? Absolutely the best choice. And I think we have to separate what he said, the letter versus the spirit of what he was saying. He was talking about the city of Chicago annually spends over $100 million in overtime. And yet we have chartered our schools. We have privatized them. We have vouchered them. We have taken gym teachers out of the school. We've taken speech pathologists. We've taken our counselors out of the school. So he was speaking in a very colloquial general language. But more specifically, he was saying we're spending more. We spend over $1.5 billion on policing. And we have 83% of the murders unsolved. That's the specific issue he was talking about. He wants more police on the streets. He wants safer safer neighborhoods. He'll be tough when it's necessary, but he's also compassionate. Let me ask you about your recent visit to Taiwan. As you know, after former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi visited, there's a big backlash from China. Are you concerned at all that your visit could be seen as provocative, that it could complicate the Biden administration's efforts to navigate this very thorny foreign policy crisis between China and Taiwan? No, we've come over there to accelerate, if we will, uh, continuing cooperation with Taiwan. Taiwan is in a very unique position, is at the epicenter of this technology. We have to onshore some more of our manufacturing. Congressman Rokana has done an excellent job in the CHIPS Act. We have to bring back what was offshore to onshore. In our, con- in our conversation uh, with, uh, I'm on the now, yeah. on the House of Foreign Affairs, was to talk about how can we bring jobs back into America. It was very peaceful. I'm going to reach out to the Chinese embassy 
And this has been a piece that started with the President uh, Carter. It's lasted for 50 years. In no means do we try to bring any provocation to this region. All right, Congressman Jackson, thank you so much Honored for be being here. here. Great to see you in person. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Coming up next, new reporting that more Ukrainian pilots could be in the U.S. as soon as this month, possibly preparing for the U.S. to send fighter jets to Ukraine. You're watching Meet the Press now. Welcome back. Ukraine remains determined to hold on to the town of Bakhmut. Even months of, even after months of Russian bombardment, Ukrainian President Zelensky meeting with senior military leaders today who advocated for strengthening their positions in Bakhmut and continuing their defensive operations. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin downplaying the importance of Bakhmut while visiting Jordan today, telling reporters it has more symbolic value than strategic value, adding that the fall of the town does not necessarily mean Russia has turned the tide of this fight. Amid the fierce fighting in eastern Ukraine, U.S. officials tell NBC News two Ukrainian pilots are in the U.S. undergoing an assessment to evaluate their capabilities and to determine how long it may take to train them on U.S. fighter aircrafts, including the F-16s. Joining me now is NBC News Pentagon correspondent Courtney Cuby and retired Lieutenant General Steph Twitty, former deputy commander, U.S. European Command, and an NBC News military analyst. Courtney, I want to start with you and this exclusive reporting from you and Carol Lee about these Ukrainian pilots in the U.S. What can you tell us and what's the broader significance here? So they're here uh, at a U.S. military base in Tucson, Arizona. They've been here a couple of weeks. The military is calling this a familiarization event. Essentially, essentially, they are um, helping to as helping assess their skills. These are people who are, who are already trained on various Ukrainian military platforms. They're assessing their skills on those, and they're also familiarizing them. What? frankly, many of us would call educating or training them on other potential platforms. Now, that's not just on potentially flying those platforms, but using some things like munitions that the U.S. is already pl uh, planning to provide to the Ukrainians. So they're only working on simulators. Defense officials here tell us they are not actually flying any aircraft uh, while they're here. And in addition to that, we are um, there are as, as many as 10 more Ukrainian pilots who mm. could be coming to the U.S. in the coming weeks for more of this assessment and familiarization. Now, this all comes as Biden administration officials continue to say that they have not made a decision to actually provide F-16s or other attack aircraft to the Ukrainians. Part of that is because they say that it could take months, as many as 18 months, to actually train the pilots, and it could take anywhere between 18 months up to six years to actually provide those aircraft, depending on whether they would give them refurbished ones or new build aircraft. Now, as part of this assessment, that 18-month potential uh, training time could be shortened, depending on how adept these Ukrainian pilots are at some of these various, these potential new platforms. And I will say, Kristen, one thing that the Ukrainian military has shown us over the last year is that they have just blown away timelines, potential timelines for training on some of these more advanced systems like the Patriots and others. So it's very plausible. Defense officials think it's possible that they could even be trained on these more advanced uh, fighter aircrafts like F-16s in as little as six to nine months. Wow, that is just incredible, fantastic reporting. Lieutenant General Twitty, can I just have you respond to everything you just heard from Courtney? What do you see as the significance 
of this reporting? And is it a signal that the administration has not clearly closed the door on potentially sending F-16s? Yeah, first, this is absolutely great news. And the Air Force Base that Courtney is talking about is Luke Air Force Base, which is located in Tucson. And that is where you go to conduct F-16 training. So there's something there, an indicator, number one. But two things that's going on with these two pilots and possibly more. Number one is that the Air Force is getting an assessment at their training proficiency and what it would take if we were to say, yes, you can have F-16. And so perhaps, as Courtney talked about, we could truncate that timeline because it takes about 24 months to train a U.S. pilot. And keep in mind that the, the Ukrainians are using antiquated aircraft. They have the old MiG-29s and SU-24s, 27s that they got when the wall came down. And then the second thing that's going on is uh, as they're here, we're able to provide them technique, uh, tactics, techniques, and procedures that they can take back to their own country to perhaps use while they're using these antiquated Russian aircraft uh, as an interim solution. So that's what I think is going on here. And can you give us, Lieutenant General Twitty, uh, some context for why or perspective perhaps on why the Biden administration continues to say they're not going to send X, Y, or Z. And then they reverse course. We saw this most recently with the Abrams tanks, for example, when they said that they weren't going to provide the tanks. And then a few months ago said, no, actually we are. Now, of course, it's going to take several months to get those uh, Abrams tanks over to Ukraine. But what do you make of that strategy? Well, I don't think it's a good strategy, number one. I think uh, from day one, as this war uh, kicked off and it's progressed, we see what the Russians are capable of and what they're not capable of. And one thing we know that they're capable of us is using a lot of fires, a lot of missiles and so forth. And so we have to be able to counter that with things such as F-16s, with long range art artillery strikes, with patriots to protect these cities. And so we need to go ahead and give the Ukrainians what they need, not just to defend themselves, mm -hmm. but to also to defeat the Russians. Courtney, let me just give you uh, the last question here. Secretary Austin has said that the loss of Bakhmut would be more symbolic than strategic. What are your sources telling you about where things stand? It definitely would be symbolic because this has been a, a battle, a, an extremely bloody and difficult battle for both sides for months now. So it would be, a, a, I mean, a, it, it's a crushing blow to the Ukrainians if they have to uh, leave Bakhmut, if the Russians are able to take it. They have The Russians have pretty much circled the city and circled the city. So it's, it's going to be a very difficult last few hours before, you know, if the Ukrainians decide to leave. But it... it it's it's symbolic right now, but the overall war, this is not something that's going to have a, an impact that's going to change the tide of the war. But, right. I mean, look, every one of these is, is tough on the Ukrainians. Yeah. Thank you so much. Courtney Kuby, Lieutenant General Steph Twitty, we really appreciate it. After the break, classified documents, fallout, key national security hearings, and a vote on a controversial crime bill. It's a busy week for Congress. We're going to delve into all of it. You're watching Meet the Press now.
Welcome back. The heads of five U.S. intelligence agencies will testify before Congress this week. The annual worldwide threats hearing will take place before the Senate on Wednesday and the House on Thursday. One topic likely to come up, the classified documents found at President Biden's and former President Trump's and former Vice President Mike Pence's homes. Intelligence Committee leaders received a long-awaited briefing on the documents last week. Senate Intelligence Committee Chair Mark Warner and Vice Chair Marco Rubio said the briefing left, quote, much to be desired. And House Intelligence Committee Chair Mike Turner and Ranking Member Jim Himes expressed their frustrations over the lack of information with Chuck on Meet the Press. Do you know what the Trump docs are, Congressman Turner? We, we, do you know we, what the Biden docs are, and do you know what the what the Pence docs are? No, but we, there are some things that we do know. And, and first of all, I let me stop there. No, they didn't share with you those things in a classified setting, right? Why? But, well, first off, we if the. In the things that we do know, one of the okay. things we know is that the FBI is not being forthcoming. Uh, they're, they're not giving us the information. Um, they're claiming that it's going to affect the outcome of, of their investigation, which, of course, it can't because the people who are the targets of their investigation know what, what are in those documents. Do you at least know the classification levels of these docs? Do you know, is there a dis- is there a distinction between the Trump docs, the Biden docs, and the Pence docs or not? So we have not been shown anything that would allow us to draw that conclusion. And we got to be a little careful here because what we were shown. So we you were weren't briefed the, much. Uh, well, we were, we were briefed, but I, but, but, but let's just say that neither one of us are satisfied that we got enough information to execute our primary responsibility of making right. sure that sources and methods have been protected. We've got more to learn before we can be satisfied on that. We got a flavor for what uh, was there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I won't speak for Mike, but I will tell you, having been given a flavor, this is a very serious issue. This wasn't stuff that we can say clearly does not matter. It matters. Also happening on the Hill this week, Senate Republicans say they will vote to undo D.C.'s new crime law, even though the D.C. City Council says they've already undone it themselves. The controversy, the confusion, and why it's become a national political story. Next, you're watching Meet the Press now. 